Happy Friday. This is crazy. Um, welcome to youth group. Who has no idea what's going on right now? All right, cool. Welcome to youth group. That's exactly what you should be feeling. <laughs> um, pretty normal for the first day of youth group. Um, if it's your first day to youth group, whether you're a sixth grader or you're new visiting with a friend, or you're just here because you have no idea what's going on and you just want to visit a church, welcome. Really happy you could be here. Um, special hi to the parents in the back. Hello. <laughs> All righty. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Keith. I know a lot of you from fourth, fifth grade. Um, so I'm glad I got to teach you in the past. And we're at youth group. Who's been looking forward to this for like years? Okay, some older siblings, they tell you about the, you know, the mythical snacks that are amazing and the small groups that go too long and this preacher guy who keeps talking. It's all true. It's all true. <laughs> all right. So um, this is our first youth group of the school year. It's kind of crazy that a whole year has passed by since last year. My seventh and eighth graders, do you guys remember when you first came into youth group? How overwhelming it was? How unfamiliar everything was? How maybe scary it was? Last year, we had a lot of firsts, right? Uh, we had our first ever sixth grade crash course. Who was part of that crash course last year? Okay, we talked about what's a sermon, why do we do small groups, why do we even have youth group, right? Uh, we also finished the book of Mark last year. Who remembers that? A few of you, okay. Um, that's not actually a first, but we did it, so I had to mention it. Um, this spring, we started a book. What book is that? It's a book about beginnings. Genesis, good. Yeah, we started our first series in Genesis. We about God, his creation. And for the first and Lord willing last time, we got a bus of youth kids stuck on the mountain in the snow. Who remembers that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're never doing that again. Let's all agree. We're never doing that again. <laughs> so lots of firsts last year, right? Lots of firsts. But when you think about it, your age in youth group, 6th to 12th grade, is really all about firsts. It's all about firsts. For the first time, you'll play on a sports team, or you'll learn an instrument, or you'll join a club. For the first time, you'll stress out about school. Maybe you'll stay up all night studying for some big test. And maybe you might even bomb a test or a class. For the first time, you'll get to choose your friends, and you'll really, really get to like them. Or maybe for the first time, you'll have a crush on someone, and you'll get your heart broken. Maybe for the first time, you'll go internationally, right? And you'll get to serve God in another country. Or maybe for the first time, you'll suffer or someone you love will die, and you'll wonder why God doesn't answer your prayers. Maybe for the first time, you'll finally see your parents and appreciate and admire them for how much they love and care for you, right? We can all dream, right, parents? Um, and maybe for the first time, you'll wonder why Christianity is really true. You'll wonder, is this Christian thing, is this faith thing my faith, or is it just the faith of my parents, right? The youth group age, versus grade ages six to 12, they're really all about what's new, the firsts. It's a mixture of good and of bad, of light and of darkness, of exciting and of scary. And with so many new things coming your way, do you have a plan? Do you have a plan? A plan to make it from sixth grade all the way to college, age 18 to adulthood. Do you have a plan? When I started middle school, I had no plan, right? No plan. All I cared about was finish my homework on time, uh, making sure my friends liked me, um, making sure I didn't get canned by the eighth graders who wanted to throw me into a trash can. Life was pretty simple, right? Wake up, eat cereal, read the comics. Go to school, sit at the same exact table every day during lunch with my same exact friends, then bus home, buy popcorn chicken, uh, do homework, play computer games when I wasn't supposed to, message my friends too much, go to basketball practice, shower, stay up too late, and then maybe sleep a little bit, right? 
Again, that was how I lived my life. No plan. I just did what everyone told me to do, like a zombie moving from one activity to the next. Often thoughtless, mostly joyless, always wondering, what's the point of it all, right? Why am I even living this life? And the older I get and the more and more I question, what really is the purpose of life? The more I wondered, why am I doing what I'm doing? How would you answer that question? Why do you do what you do? What is your purpose in life? Let's say tomorrow morning, I roll up to your house and I honk the horn like a maniac and I yelled out my window, hey, do you want to go on a road trip? You'd have a lot of questions, right? You'd say, uh, who else is going? Uh, how long will it take? Do you have like really good snacks or something? And wh where are we going, right? Most important question, where are we going? Well, if life is a road trip full of twists and turns and valleys and mountains, how will you know what to do on your journey if you don't know two things, where you're going and the path you're gonna to take to get there? Or in other words, how do I live my life and how am I gonna live my life? Why do I live my life and how am I gonna live my life? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes is a harder book to find in the Bible. So if you know your Old Testament, try to look for the book of Psalms and then go forward to Proverbs and then one more to Ecclesiastes. Or you can use a table of contents, okay? No shame at all, you can also use a table of contents. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And while you're turning there, King Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote at the very end of his life and he wrote it for people just like you, for people still in the days of their youth, right? So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse one. Solomon writes, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Solomon wrote to people that are just your age. Those who are in youth group, that's what we call it, youth group. He wrote to you that you need to figure out how to live your life while you're still young. Before the car gets on the freeway of life, before you go off in who knows what direction, before you just waste your life or get lost, you must remember your creator, that is God, in the days of your youth. If you're in middle school, that time's right now. That's why we call it youth group. And I wanna show you that tonight. To do that, we'll be looking at Solomon's last verses of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. I'll read it and then I'll pray and then we'll get into the sermon. Verse 13 says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Pray with me. Father, I'm so thankful that we have youth group where we get to hear your word spoken to those who are young. And I thank you, Lord, that you warn us and you encourage us and you teach us and you instruct us, Lord. When we are young, that your word is not just for adults, but it's for youth, it's for us. I thank you for every single person here, Lord. I pray that you'd bless them. 
I pray especially for myself that you help me to preach your word as it deserves. The Lord, you help me to serve, that you be seen and loved. We love you, Lord, because you loved us first. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. What can you tell me about King Solomon? I'll take some hands. What can you tell me about King Solomon? Go. He was wise. He was wise. He did everything under the sun. He did everything under the sun. Good, you've read Ecclesiastes. He was also foolish, interesting, wise and foolish. Okay, who else, what else, yeah, keep going. He had a lot of wives. He had a lot of wives, how many? Good. I mean, that's not good, but. <laughs> okay, what else, who else, what else can tell me about King Solomon? He like, he like died under like a crushing building or something? Uh, that is close, that's not Solomon. Yeah, yeah, that's okay, good. He was rich. Wow, oh, you guys know a lot. Okay, you can preach a sermon for me. Go ahead, one last one. He was a king, all right, excellent. So he basically had everything I wanted to talk about. Ecclesiastes, or excuse me, Solomon was a king, right? He, who was his parents? David and Bathsheba. He was the second king of Israel. He was exceedingly wise. He's the promised heir of King David. Second Samuel 7, second Samuel 7, says that God will establish his kingdom, namely Solomon's kingdom, that David's son would build God's house, and that God himself would watch over Solomon. So he's a, he's a special guy. Uh, 1 Kings 3 says that Solomon loved the Lord and he walked in the statutes of David, his father. That's a good thing. God even promised Solomon in 1 Kings 3. He says, behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that no one like you has been before you and none like you shall ever arise after you. I, also, I give you also what you have, have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Solomon starts really well. He builds God's temple. He makes the kingdom strong. He establishes peace. He sacrifices thousands of animals to worship God because that's how much he wants to show he loves God. Solomon started well. But in Deuteronomy 17, God commanded that a king of Israel must not do three things. He must not trust in military might. He must not trust in monetary might. And he must not trust in political might. Well, 1 Kings 4 said that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Basically, these are like tanks, right? So he has 40,000 tanks, you know, just in case he needs to go to war. 1 Kings 10 says that Solomon was filthy rich. According to one calculation, he made $1.5 trillion every year. $1.5 trillion is more money than the 10 richest people on this planet currently possess. And Solomon made that every year. First Kings 11 says that Solomon loved many foreign women. That means women he should not have loved, should not have married. And if he married them to have a political alliance to gain political power, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And first Kings 11 says that when, God, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father. Solomon even worshiped these really terrible pagan gods, Ashtaroth, Milcom, Chemosh, and Molech, and he sacrificed to them because of his wives. He even built temples to worship these fake gods right across the valley from the temple that he built to worship the true God so they could see each other as they were worshiping their gods. This is crazy, right? This is, can you imagine a pastor doing these kinds of things? And Solomon was actually worse because he was king of the nation of God. 
He was king of Israel. So Solomon failed. If God were to give him a grade, he would get a super mega F minus, minus, minus. I mean, what happened to this guy? He had godly parents. He was smart. He was wise. He was successful in the world. How did he fail? How did he fail so terribly? He tried to live life without God. That's it. He tried to live life without God. He tried to live as if life wasn't about God, as if it wasn't about the God of the universe, as if God wasn't really in charge, as if God didn't really deserve all worship. So he wasted his life. In the road of life, he got lost off the road. He was driving, but then he closed his eyes, and nothing good is going to happen after that. At the end of his life, Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, and the point, the refrain of Ecclesiastes is vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or to put it into our speech, without God, everything is pointless. Without God, everything under the sun, food, drink, pleasure, projects, family, fun, all of life, it's meaningless. Without God, everything's futility, pointless, emptiness. It's like trying to catch the wind. Why does Solomon say that? It's because he tried to live life without God. And he learned firsthand how worthless it was. It's like if you were to try to flap your arms really, really fast to fly to the moon. It's as if you're trying to convince your parents that you should get your own car tomorrow. It's not gonna work. It's pointless. Why try? In his life living without God, Solomon got everything this life had to offer. He was literally king. He was an international genius. He had amazing food, extravagant mansions, endless entertainment, the most beautiful woman in all the world. He had power, pleasure, prestige. In other words, he had everything that the world wants, everything that the world has. And he said, without God, all of it, everything is meaningless. And that's why he writes Ecclesiastes. He writes it to you, to me, to generations to come. And he says to them, don't waste your life. Don't be like me. Instead, in everything and always, live for God. And do you see him? This old wrinkly man, bowed over, brokenhearted, shouting from the finish line of life, right before his death, all the way back to you, who stand at the beginning. Remember your creator. Do not forget him. Always live for God and never wander from his path. Solomon made all the mistakes so that we don't have to. And you'd be wise to listen to his voice. You'd be wise to listen to his warning. In our passage today, Solomon says one main thing. Fear God always in everything. Another way to say it is always live for God. Fear God always in everything, always live for God. Can I make a deal with you? When your parents ask you tonight or tomorrow, how is youth group? You know, your first youth group is exciting. How is youth group? You can say whatever you want, okay? You can say the snacks were amazing. You can say the sermon was boring. You can say you didn't like your small group leader. Okay, don't say that. <laughs> you can say a lot of things, right? But promise me this, let's make a deal. The first thing you gotta say is this. I learned to fear God always. Can we do that? 
First thing you say, I learned to fear God always and everything. That means I need to always live for God. Deal? Not if you're like, okay, I can do that, right? I learned to fear God always and everything. That means I need to always live for God. I have two points in this sermon. First point is that the fear of God is our attitude. The fear of God must be our attitude. Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, the end of the matter is this, all has been heard, fear God. In other words, the beginning and the end is about fearing God. So wherever you are in your journey, the beginning, the middle, or the end, you must fear God always. Okay, so Keith, what in the world does it mean to fear God? Right, that's a phrase we use all the time in Christianity, but what does it mean to fear God? Do you remember the first time you went to the ocean? Anyone? I don't, because I was a baby, right? But my guess is you were simultaneously filled with awe, wonder, and fear. It seems to go on for forever, all the way to the end of the world. At sunset, it seems to even swallow the sun itself. I mean, who knows how deep the ocean is? Who knows how far it goes? All the mysteries it holds, the creatures of its deep, the secrets, all the way from the beginning of creation. This mixture of awe and wonder and even fear somewhat captures what it means to fear God. To fear God doesn't mean I'm afraid of God, so I'm gonna run away from him. That's not what the fear of God means. When you fear the ocean, you don't run away screaming because you think the ocean's gonna like come and grab you or something, right? Rather, you acknowledge it's bigger than me, it's way more powerful than me, it's mightier than me. In a similar way, in a greater way, the fear of God means you see God as high and mighty, as way bigger than you, as the one who's most important, who has all power and all authority. The fear of God means I'm not, the fear of God does not mean I'm afraid of God, so I run from him. But the fear of God means I fear God and therefore I bow before him. It means having an attitude that says, God, you're king and I serve you. Solomon started out fearing God. I mean, he wrote in Proverbs, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. But at some point he wandered. Maybe he thought, I am wise in my own eyes. I'm the wisest guy on earth. I'm gonna do things my way. Maybe he even said to himself, I refuse to see God as king. I'm in charge of everything. Look at my power, look at my wealth, look at the kingdom I've built all by myself, by my own power and for my own great glory. I should be, I must be the point of this story. In the story of your life, Who's the main character? Who's the hero? Who's in charge? Who's most important? If you fear God, the main character is not you. The main character is him. If you fear God, you don't live for yourself anymore. You live for him. The most important person in your life, the most important opinion in your life is not your own anymore, but it's his. So when you make decisions, when you decide what to do, you don't ask, what do I want? You ask, what does God want? The most important voice in your life when you fear God is not what other people think about me or what would they think if I do this? But it's actually, what does God think about me? And what will God think if I do this?
this week or maybe last week, many of you walked into a new school. And I'm going to give a few hypotheticals of someone walking through their new school on their first day. And I want you to answer, are they living for God or are they living for themselves? Okay, can you do that with me? Living for God or living for themselves? First day, first scenario. First day, Eve wonders, will people like me? Will people think I'm pretty? What if I can't make friends? What if school's too hard? Second scenario. In math class, Adam doesn't really like the students he's sitting next to because they seem like really uncool. So he ignores them. Third, during lunch, Eve is a little nervous about who to sit next to, but she remembers it's really hard to be lonely, and so she tries to befriend that new kid who's sitting by himself. Fourth, turns out that new kid is Adam. Adam's really nervous about it, but he bows his head and he prays. He says, Father, thank you for this day and for this food. Help me to love those around me because you love me first. Fifth, after school, Adam goes home and he flips between wasting time on his computer and just staring at the wall doing nothing. Just because he doesn't really feel like doing what his parents asked him to do. Sixth, at dinner, Eve's parents tell her it's her turn to do the dishes, but she hates being told to do. And so she complains, she yells at her mom, she slams the door to her room. Seventh, I think, while lying in bed trying to go to sleep, Adam realizes he made a commitment to read the Bible every day, so he gets out of bed, gets out his Bible, and reads a chapter of Philippians. Last, after crying and calming down, Eve comes out of her room, goes to her mom, and says, Mom, I had a really bad day at school, but that doesn't make my sin okay. Will you forgive me for being angry with you? Remember your God, your creator, who you are to fear always will struggle, will fail, will constantly wander from the path, but by his mercy, he continually brings us back. Second point, the fear of God in our actions. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 says, fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. Keep his commands means obey, that means do what God says, but it's actually much, much more than just doing that. Um, I've printed for you Deuteronomy 10 in your notes, or Deuteronomy 10, it says this, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask from you? But to fear the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by loving him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul by keeping the commands of the, God, of the Lord and his statutes, which I'm commanding you this day for your good. Oops, uh, can someone go into the sound room and turn on the lights? Thank you. Okay, so Deuteronomy 10 Verse 12 and 13, I think, is really, really helpful. It's really helpful because it answers these questions. It says, if we ask, okay, what does fearing the Lord look like? It means walking in God's ways. It means loving him. Or if we ask, what does it mean to serve the Lord our God? It means obeying his commandments and his statutes. So Deuteronomy 10, it ties together fearing God and walking with God and loving God and serving God into this beautiful braid of truth, right? All of it goes together. In other words, when Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments, he's not just saying, okay, just do what God says, right? He's not just saying that because obedience is more than just following rules. If obedience were only following rules, you know who'd be really, really good at obeying God? Robots. Robots. You give robots a bunch of commands, a bunch of instructions to follow, and it would always do the right thing. 
It would always go to class on time. It would always do the dishes. It would always pick up its clothes in its room. It would always study instead of watching TV. It would always take out the trash. It would never fight with the siblings. It would never throw a fit. It would never forget to read the Bible. It would never get into a fight with your mom. But it would never truly obey. Merely doing actions is not obedience. God desires true obedience. That is doing what God desires because you love him. Anyone have one of those robots that like, is like a circle, you know, like bounces across the room, automatically trying to vacuum before? Okay, you get, everyone knows what those are, right? Like, I don't know what they're called. Roombas. Roombas, thank you, Roombas. Okay, so you know those Roombas, or not copyrighted, robot vacuums uh, that bump into all the chairs and the tables and the, the walls and you know, and after like five hours, it finally cleans one room, those things. It always does what, it told, what it's told, except when it gets caught in her couch, but it usually always does what it's told. But no matter what you do, it will never love you. You can always keep it charged. You can buy gifts, you know, like new motors or something. You can compliment it every single night. Good little robot, right? It'll never love you, but it'll always obey you, but it'll never love you. You're not a robot. That's a good thing. And you're certainly not a robot vacuum, right? That's not what God wants. A robot cannot truly obey God because it cannot love God. But if you're a Christian, you can. And if you're a Christian, you do. Fear God and keep his commandments. Another way to say it is follow God always in everything. Another way to say it is love him and therefore do what he says. Be in awe of God, live for God, love God, serve God with all that you are, all the time, in everything. That's the key to living well. That's Solomon's advice to you. That's his command to you who are in the youth in this new season of middle school. What's your purpose in life? If you're wise, this is your purpose. Fear God and keep his commandments. Solomon's last word is a warning. He says in chapter, chapter 12, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, God knows all of it. He sees, he judges, he knows all that we do and think and feel and say and desire, even in secret. You can't fake the fear of God. The fear of God is not like a piece of, like a jacket you put on in the morning to go to church on Sunday and a jacket you put on for Friday nights, but then you throw it in the closet for the rest, the rest of the week. The fear of God is what you do all the time. It's who you are. It's part of your soul. God exposes our thoughts, our sins, and even our hidden acts of loving obedience. He knows all of it, For a little bit, Solomon tried to live a double life. Worship God on this side, you know, most of the time, but also worship power and money and politics the other times. And eventually, his sin exposed him. You must learn from Solomon's life. You must learn from his mistake. You cannot hide your sins from God. So don't try. He knows. Instead, love him fear him, serve him, obey him. Again, to those of you for the first time, especially you sixth graders, welcome to youth group. It's your first one. Or if you're here for the 50th time, you're like, yeah, I've been here, been there, done that, heard this Keith guy. Still, whether you're first time or 50th time, God's word to you is the same. If you wanna be happy, if you wanna live a truly good life, fear God always in everything. That means always live for God. 
If you do this one thing, by God's mercy, your years of youth group, your years of being a youth, will be full of, yes, of lots of new and scary and exciting things. But overwhelmingly, it'll be full of joy. By God's grace, for the first time, you'll repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only savior of the world. And that's my prayer for you, that every single one of you would love Christ because he loved you first. By God's grace, for the first time, you'll taste and see that God is good, that God is better than anything you could have in the world. May he become your greatest delight and love from now all the way until you go home to Christ. By God's grace, for the first time, you'll do a lot of new scary things. You'll try for a sports team, you'll learn a new instrument, you'll get your heart broken, you'll bomb a test, but you'll trust him in all of those and give all your anxieties to him because he cares for you. By God's grace, for the first time, you'll make your best friends here in the church whom you can love for the rest of your life. They'll help you when you suffer. They'll give you counsel and advice when you're discouraged. They'll love you when you're not being a nice person. And they'll encourage you with the word of God as you walk with them as fellow servants all the way into heaven together. That's the blessed life of living in the fear of God. That's what God wants for you. That's what Solomon wants for you. That's what your youth staff wants for you too. Pray with me. Father, would this be the first day for many when they begin to walk in the fear of you? Not a fear that wants to run away, but a fear that bows before you. A fear that says you're mighty and good and full of love for me. A fear that wants to obey because we know it's good for us. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the encouragement from Ecclesiastes, I thank you that Solomon failed and that you still were merciful to him. Would you be merciful to us and show us the mercy and love of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.